Hi, my name is Al Giro, and this is KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Become a member of KPFK.org and keep your favorite radio station alive and free of commercials and corporate underwriting. KPFK, fiercely independent. You're going to love this. Just love it. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. I do, to correct CNN's errors. <laughs> there is no being scared. I don't care how many envelopes of rice they sent you. No being scared. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you. Live in Los Angeles. On KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher Radio app, on the TuneIn Radio app, and now on Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn Radio. This is your broadcast. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, here on the broadcast. Welcome to it, and uh, we will have some accurate news for you today, because this is not CNN. Yeah, you may have heard that uh, this is a, has been an amazing 24 hours. After the last uh, 24 hours of suspicious packages and letters said to contain ricin and other dangers, which will most likely prove to be completely untrue, CNN is reporting this afternoon that an, that an arrest has been made in the Boston Marathon bombing case. AP and Reuters, of course, report that there has not been an arrest in the Boston Marathon bombing case, but that a suspect is in custody and an arrest is imminent. NBC, meanwhile, reports no arrests have been made at all and no arrests are imminent. But never fear, Fox News confirms that an arrest has been made in the Boston Marathon bombing case until they don't. Until CNN sources begin to walk back reports of the arrest, they say that photos of a possible suspect have been identified. Several different reporters report that several different top law enforcement officials say that no arrest has been made, according to CNN. And then finally, the Boston police and the Justice Department report confirm that no arrest has been made says CBS's, uh, CBS News's Mark Noller, CBS which did not report that there was an arrest. He wrote on Twitter that this is the kind of story in which being right sometimes takes a backseat to being first to report a development. NBC also reported that there were no arrests, that there was no one in custody. This was the madness you missed on the TVs, on the Twitters, if you weren't paying attention today. 
There is, in fact, no arrest as of this afternoon, three o'clock Pacific time, on Wednesday, in the uh, in the Boston Marathon bomber case. Here is the FBI press statement that was sent to the U.S. media. Quote: Contrary to widespread reporting, no arrest has been made in connection with the Boston Marathon attack. Over the past day and a half, there have been a number of press reports based on information from unofficial sources that have been inaccurate. Since these stories have been have unintended consequences, we ask the media, particularly at this early stage of the investigation, to exercise caution and an attempt and attempt to verify information through appropriate channels before reporting. So there has been no arrest. There has been no real news. There's only been pretend news on your corporate media outlets. That's what you've missed. That's why you've tuned in to KPFK Pacifica Radio. Glad you can join us here. We're going to sort of turn our show a little bit upside down today because my guest, uh, L.A. County Registrar of Voters, uh, Dean Logan, he actually has a longer title. Let me give it to LA, Los Angeles County Registrar Recorder County Clerk Dean Logan will be joining us at the bottom of the hour to talk about plans that he has in this county, we are in L.A., in this county, to completely rework the voting system. And if you listen to uh, the broadcast, if you read bradblog.com, you know we cover voting systems quite a bit. We tend to cover not so much the horse race, but what the horses leave be- behind on the uh, on the track and the track conditions that the horses are running on. This is hugely important. This conversation we'll have with Dean Logan, not just not just because uh, it's going to affect L.A., but because it could potentially affect the entire country. To put this into perspective for you, Los Angeles County alone is the largest voting jurisdiction in the country. It is larger than 42 states. So if it was a state, it would be larger. If L.A. County alone was a state, it would be larger than 42 other states. Not only that. But uh, the plan that they're talking about for Los Angeles is building their own voting system from the ground up and then selling it to the rest of California and to the rest of this country. So you are going to want to stay tuned for that. I've got some uh, some concerns and some questions, as you may suspect, for uh, for Dean Logan. This is an ongoing project. Uh, but it is moving forward such that um, NPR recently announced that uh, folks in Los Angeles could be voting on this new system, whatever it is. Hopefully we'll get some hints a little bit later today. But whatever it is, they may be voting on this very system as early as 2015. So now is the time to pay attention. And again, it won't necessarily just be us here in Los Angeles voting on this system. It may well be you in the rest of the country and perhaps even in the rest of the world. Because here's the way it kind of works. Uh, what LA does affects California, what California does. What California does when it comes to voting and election systems affects the rest of the country. And of course, what this country does when it comes to elections and democracy does end up, unfortunately, affecting the rest of the world. So, uh, stay tuned for all of that. All right. Other breaking news this, oh, and we will have, uh, Desi Doyen with some, uh, green news coming up shortly, as I say, flipping our usual structure today. 
Uh, but it was a big breaking news today. Most of it complete and utter nonsense, like that uh, CNN stuff we uh, I just told you about. Maybe I'll play you some clips from that in a bit. But we also have breaking news from the U.S. Senate on the expanded background checks bill, the uh, Toomey Mansion bill. Toomey, the Republican from Pennsylvania, and Manchin, the Democrat from uh, West Virginia. The Senate has voted 54 to 46 to reject bipartisan legislation to expand background checks to gun shows and Internet sales, falling short today of the 60-vote threshold that leaders agreed to for all amendments. So it had enough votes to to pass. It had enough votes for a majority in the U.S. Senate. It did not have enough to defeat a filibuster. And so as of now, the expanded background checks, the only, really the only gun safety legislation that looked like it might have a, a reasonable chance in the U.S. Senate of passing, has failed. In short, the NRA, once again has won. Mayor Bloomberg um, said that the defeat of background of the background check bill is, quote, a huge victory for criminals. And, of course, the NRA celebrated the failure of this background check bill today, stating that uh, calling calling the mansion to me Schumer proposal uh, misguided. They said that this amendment would have criminalized certain private transfers of firearms between honest citizens. That is untrue. Uh, requiring lifelong friends, neighbors, and some family members to get federal government permission to exercise a fundamental right or face prosecution. Of course, that is all untrue, and uh, but it is the NRA. The same NRA, which, by the way, a decade ago called for universal background checks. For every gun sale, gun check, uh, background checks, uh, as Wayne LaPierre called for them in the U.S. Congress, every time for every gun sale. Obama, President Obama this afternoon is calling out the NRA. Uh, the gun lobby and its allies willfully lied about the bill. Did he say that? Did he said they willfully lied? Obama did? Very good. Glad to hear it, uh, because they did. Let me give you an example of their lies, of their willful lies uh, from the NRA. Here's a 30-second a ad that's sort of flown under the radar. Um, and it'll give you an idea about how the NRA is lying about this bill, claiming that 80% of uh, cops, where's this, where's my notes here? Yeah, they, they claim that 80% of police in a poll said that background checks will have no effect. That is an utter lie. Here is the NRA's 30-second ad. President Obama and Mayor Bloomberg are pushing gun control, but America's police say they're wrong. 71% of police say Obama's gun ban will have zero effect on violent crime. 80% of police say more background checks will have no effect. 91% say the right answer is swift prosecution and mandatory sentencing. Tell your senator to listen to America's police instead of listening to Obama and Bloomberg. 
The men and women of the National Rifle Association are responsible for the contents of this advertising. Actually, the men and women of the National Rifle Association are not responsible for the content of that advertising. The NRA leadership is responsible for the lies in that advertising. And in fact, uh, that NRA claim that 80% of police say background checks will have no effect on violent crime was looked into by William Salatin today of uh, of Slate, and he said it's a complete lie. They were trying to find this poll showing that 80% of police say the background checks will have no effect on violent crime. But in fact, here is the poll, he writes, conducted by Police One. He says, if you read the methodology posted at the bottom, you'll see that it isn't really a poll at all, since it wasn't conducted by random sampling. It was promoted to the site's members and was easy to flood with advocates of a particular point of view. But the bigger problem, he writes, in terms of the NRA's ad, is that the poll never asks whether background checks will have an effect on violent crime. There were only two questions in this poll that had anything to do with background checks. And then he uh, he, he lists uh, both of them. One asks, uh, where are we here? Um, let's see. Uh, would requiring mental health background checks on prospective buyers in all gun sales from federally licensed dealers reduce instances of mass shootings? And 44% said no. That only had to do with uh, with uh, mental health background checks. And then the next question they asked was, do you think a federal law prohibiting private non-dealer transfers of firearms between individuals would reduce crime? And 80% said no. But asking if a federal law prohibiting private non-dealer transfers of firearms is not the same as a background check. Nowhere near the same as a background check. William Salatin writes that he asked NRA for comment on this. He hasn't heard back yet, but there's no plausible alternative explanation. They must be uh, referring to that question in their fake poll. Even with the biased sample, he writes, the poll doesn't say what the NRA ad claims it says. And, of course, if you ask a sample of gun control skeptics about a law prohibiting non-dealer transfers of firearms between individuals, of course, you'll get a lower you'll get lower numbers than you would if you asked about background checks, which I will add 92 percent of America support 92 percent, 92 percent of Americans don't support anything, but apparently they support background checks, universal background checks, and yet this can't even get an up or down vote in our U.S. Senate thanks to the NRA and thanks to their lies. By the way, Republicans also support background checks by 88%. 88% of Republicans support background checks, but a background check for all gun purchases cannot get approval in our U.S. Senate, cannot even get an up or down vote. And I'll go further. 78% of NRA members, members of the NRA, 78% support universal background checks, just as the NRA leadership itself did a decade ago when they called for a background check for every gun sale, every time. That was then. This is now. This is when they lie. 
And this is when they hold up our uh, democratic process, our representative democratic process in the U.S. Senate from even voting on the bill. Despite the fact that a majority is calling for a background check and despite the fact that a background check is the lowest hanging fruit of the entire uh, gun safety package that has been proposed. The uh, high capacity magazine uh, ban, that's out. The assault weapons ban, that's out. Uh, almost uh, all of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate, 46 of them, and a couple of Democrats, I should add, uh, were against against this common-sense bill. Go figure. All right, let's uh, go back to Boston in the last few uh, minutes we have here before we turn to the Green News Report. Um, the question that I suspect, uh, that I know, is on the minds of many people out there. And I'm just going to be frank about this. I'm going to be blunt about this. I'm going to be uh, almost Glenn Beckian about this. The question that everybody is waiting on pins and needles to discover, is the bomber a Muslim or is he a Republican? That's pretty much the question. Whether people will put it in those terms or not, that's pretty much the question that everyone is uh, is trying to determine or waiting on pins and needles to find out. Glenn Beck uh, was uh, trying to do some uh, damage control in advance, along with a bunch of folks on the right. Here's what he said. As this situation, as the Boston bombing was uh, running, was developing live on Monday, here was Glenn Beck already trying to preempt what may be coming. Somebody in my office said, oh, geez, they're going to they're going to make this look like it's, you know, you know, some uh, American citizen that's all hacked off of the government. And I said, no American citizen blows up random people. That's a Middle Eastern scene. That's not an American scene. When our crazies <laughs> go off, they they target the government, not streets that are crowded with people. Really, Glenn Beck? That's a Middle Eastern scene, not an American scene. When our crazies go off, they target the government, not streets that are crowded with people. Where were you, Glenn, back in 2011? Do you remember the MLK, the Martin Luther King Day parade bomber in Spokane, Washington in 2011? A white supremacist who ended up pleading guilty in 2011, and he is currently serving 32 years in jail. Do you remember that, Glenn Beck? Do you remember that scene? Was that a Middle Eastern scene on the streets of Spokane, Glenn Beck? Uh, he was one of yours, my friend. Uh, and he was uh, targeting, and by the way, that bomb thankfully did not go off, but he was not targeting the government. He was targeting the Martin Luther King Day uh, folks in the parade. How about Eric Rudolph in 1996, the Atlanta, you remember him, the Atlanta Olympics bomber? That bomb did go off. He was a radical anti-abortion extremist, terrorist, as they are known. Uh, didn't seem to be targeting the government, seemed to be targeting uh, the uh, peaceful folks who were gathering to go to the Olympics in 1996. How about all those shootings uh, of abortion providers, Glenn Beck? Is that a Middle East scene or is that a U.S. scene? Is that a U.S. scene uh, full of Republicans, Glenn Beck? Then, of course, there was right-winger Timothy McVeigh, who, though he targeted a federal government building, Beck is right on that count, apparently Timothy McVeigh did so at a time when he knew there would be many children in a daycare facility there. I usually try to ignore Glenn Beck, but in this case, uh, he's kind of representative of folks on the right, 
Uh, it's not just Glenn Beck. It's uh, much of Fox News. It's uh, Pat Robertson. Let's play this quick clip from him. Pat Robertson saying pretty much the same thing this week. But to think that somebody would be so vicious, so evil as to want to kill little children and maim families who are there rejoicing in a, in a sporting contest on a beautiful day in Boston. It just makes you sick at your stomach. But don't talk to me about religion of peace. No way. We're not talking to you about anything, Pat Robertson. And the religion of peace he's referring to, of course, is the uh, is the Muslim religion. And he, too, was doing what Glenn Beck was doing, was presuming that this was a Muslim terrorist. Interesting uh, development throughout the day on Monday when Barack Obama came out, spoke about what had happened in Boston, did not use the word uh, terror or terrorist or terrorism uh, in his initial comments. Now, normally... If you recall Benghazi, the right went bonkers over that, the fact that he did not use the word terrorist right, right off the bat. Uh, those complaints were a little bit more muted on Monday for some reason. Why? I will go ahead and speculate that it's because uh, the folks on the right didn't know if it was going to be one of theirs, a Muslim, uh, or one of ours, a Republican. And uh, bet your bottom dollar that if it turns out to be a uh, a, a, a right winger, they're going to do everything they can to uh, minimize the word terrorism in that event. They'll call him, oh, he's an extremist. He's not one of us. He's an extremist, not a terrorist. I guess the main difference between a terrorist and an extremist is a terrorist is a Muslim. According to the right wingers, an extremist is just one of ours. Who has gone off the rails? Let's do some green news, G. It's not easy being green. It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. And people tend to pass you over because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water. Or stars in the sky. Standing out with flashy sparkles and stars in the sky is Desi Doyen, our <laughs> producer, my co-host on the Green News Report. Hey, Desi Doyen. Hey. You know, I was all uh, outraged uh, out, if that's the right word. I was, I was outraged fatigued by the time uh, today came around. It was going to be a pleasant show. It was going to be, you know, we're going to have, we're going to be joined by the uh, L.A. County Registrar of Voters, Dean Logan, at the bottom of the hour. Uh, I wasn't going to yell and scream. Oh, well, so much for that. <laughs> I was once again undermined by the news, real, fake, and otherwise. Uh, but our Green News report today... Chock full of good news. Chock full of good news. Mostly. And Yeah. Well, and you know what? You never expect that from the Green News Report. Uh, so let's kick it off, our Green News Report. Uh, I'll have another minute or two with you, and we'll come back with Dean Logan. Kick it, G. Because of the urgency of this issue, we have agreed to engage in a new bilateral dialogue. U.S. inks climate agreements with China and Japan. Another oil company calls it quits in the Arctic. California sets wind energy record. Score one for the underdogs. Inside Climate News wins a Pulitzer. Plus, this is another good place for the snails. To, oh, my goodness. 
Ew. Florida invaded by giant slimy snails. All of that and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comments. But I love the Earth. If you ask me, it is the greatest planet in the world. And that's about as snarky as I feel like being today. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, to be frank, with this week's events in Boston, I'm not feeling particularly snarky for some reason. No, me neither. So I'm turning to the Green News Report because you always cheer me up. With your bright, green, shiny news. You got any of that today in <laughs> well, the Green actually, News Report? Yes, we do. Really? We do have some good news. Thank you. Online media startup InsideClimateNews.org has won a Pulitzer Prize for its expose on the flawed regulation of U.S. oil pipelines and the 2010 Enbridge Tar Sands Pipeline spill on the Kalamazoo River in Michigan. That was the largest onshore oil spill in U.S. history. InsideClimateNews.org is a tiny, tiny nonprofit. They are doing great work on covering the Exxon, Arkansas tar sands pipeline spill. And in fact, Lisa Song with Inside Climate News is the reporter that ExxonMobil threatens to arrest last week. So go underdogs. So some, some bad news on the spills, of course, but some good news that somebody's finally taking notice of the great coverage that's happening on the ground. Yes, and the Pulitzer Committee recognized a lot of excellent environmental reporting. It is moving up in the world. Bad news, they've overlooked the Green News report again. Oh, well. In California, a wind energy record. The operator of the California Electric Electric Grid announced last week that high winds harvested by wind turbines hit a record level of energy output, generating over 4,000 megawatts for the state, and that's nearly equal to the maximum capacity of California's two nuclear power plants combined. Very cool. That is good news. Thank you for that, too. Meanwhile, in fossil fuel news, Uh the U.S. Chemical Safety Board has concluded that lax state regulations were a factor in the explosion at Chevron's 100-year-old refinery in Richmond, California last year. That sent 15,000 people to the hospital for breathing problems. Quote, weak state regulations allowed the company to monitor rather than simply fix potential problems. And there was talk for a while that investigators had discovered a pipe had been rerouted to avoid uh, monitoring or something that sounded rather criminal. Anything further on that? Not yet. Uh, We'll find out hopefully soon. More oil companies are re-evaluating their plans to drill in the harsh extremes of the Arctic after Shell Oil's comedy of tragic errors over the last year. Now, ConocoPhillips has announced it has scrapped plans to drill in the Arctic in 2014, blaming strict government regulations, of course. (laughs) They ought to blame what happened to Shell as it was one disaster after another with their rigs uh, getting mired up there, running into storms. And dodging unpredictable ice flows. So as of now, there will be no drilling by any of these companies up there in the Arctic this summer. That's what it looks like. There's some more good news. Thank you very much. International climate diplomacy inches forward. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, on a trip to Asia over the weekend, signed two large-scale climate change cooperation agreements with both China and Japan that include pledges to reduce emissions and, quote, set the kind of powerful example that can inspire the world. Much as we did yesterday in Beijing because of the urgency of this issue, we have agreed to engage in a new bilateral dialogue based on three pillars, focusing on post-2020 climate agreements, enhancing the low emissions development, and helping to build climate-resilient 
societies. Now, getting China in an agreement is a pretty big deal. It's not binding, but it could pave the way for international negotiations. Is that a treaty? Would that have to be approved by the U.S. Senate? No, this is just where they agreed to take pragmatic measures and to share ideas. Okay, good. Then more good news. Thank you very much. Finally, Florida is being invaded. This is another good place for the snails. To, oh, my goodness. Ew. A giant African land snails. They are huge, as big as a rat, and they eat almost everything, including the stucco and plaster on your house, says this inspector for Florida's Department of Agriculture. They like to eat the stucco off the sides of the houses because uh, it contains calcium, and the calcium helps to build their shells. Over 117,000 have been caught in just two years since they were first discovered in Miami. The Department of Agriculture's Mark Fagan warns they have to be stopped before they spread to Florida's agriculture region. Stopped and sautéed with butter and garlic. Sounds delicious. But you can't eat them. What? They have a parasite. Now you tell me. <sighs> there goes the good news. It well, for more of that uh, mostly good news, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Remember, you can download our broadcast anytime via iTunes or the Stitcher or TuneIn radio apps. You can also find us and like us on the Facebook and follow us 24-7 on the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Good News Green News Report. In every life we have some trouble. But when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. Now. See? <laughs> that calmed me down. Indeed it did. We got the great stuff coming up on tomorrow's report, including the EPA postponing those new rules for power plant emissions. Very good. Thank you. Sure. See how I'm staying calm? Yes. Because I'm preparing for Dean Logan, who's coming up. L.A. County Registrar. Right. And I'm not going to let all of that other stuff get me crazy. <laughs> Thank you, Desi Doyen. Singing the blues when the Red Sox lose. It's a crisis in your life. On the run, cause all your girlfriends want to be your wife. And the laundry ticket's in the wash. The check is in the mail And your little angel Hung the cat up by its tail And your third fiancé didn't show Sometimes you want to go Where everybody knows your name And they're always glad you came You want to be where you can see Our troubles are all the same You want to go where everybody knows your name My name is Brad Friedman. This is KPFK. We got your back, Boston. Stay tuned. Dean Logan is going to be joining us next. looking bright And your shrink ran off to Europe And didn't even ride And your husband wants to be a girl There's one place in the world where everybody knows your name.
This is KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. KPFK is a proud media sponsor of the 14th annual Topanga Earth Day, taking place at the Topanga Community House Fairgrounds on April 20th and 21st. Visitors will enjoy world-class musical performances, guest speakers, workshops, healing arts, and fun for the whole family. Special performances by John DeVersa, Tina Malia, Leon Mobley, Carioca, Brian Jordan, Stephanie Laluz, Saturn Returns, Fabiano Donacimento, and more. The festival benefits Sea Shepherd and the Topanga Creek Watershed Committee. That's the 14th annual Topanga Earth Day, April 20th and 21st at the Topanga Community House Fairgrounds. More information is available at kpfk.org. do love LA. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman on KPFK. We are live this afternoon in Los Angeles. Glad you could join us. By the way, I keep forgetting to give out my Twitter handle. If you'd like to badmouth me there, you may. My Twitter handle is the Bradblog. Otherwise, I am your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, and muckraker from bradblog.com. Dean Logan was appointed Registrar Recorder County Clerk for Los Angeles County, California in 2008, July of 2008, previously serving prior to that as the Acting Registrar Recorder County Clerk and as Chief Deputy prior to the former Registrar Recorder County Clerk Connie McCormick's sudden departure in the months before the 2008 presidential election. Dean Logan has over 20 years of experience in elections administration. Prior to moving to Southern California, he served as the Director of Records, Elections, and Licensing Services for King County, Washington, as State Elections Director for the Washington Secretary of State, and as the Elected County Clerk and Chief Deputy County Auditor in Kitsap County, Washington, he joins us today on the broadcast to talk about something that I've uh, been looking forward to talking to him about on the air. Hopefully we can do it with some frequency as this moves forward over the next year or two. A new voting system for Los Angeles County, the largest county, the largest voting jurisdiction, at least in the nation. It is larger, has more voters than 42 of the 50 states. That's one county alone. We're talking about uh, some 46, 4,621 polling places. It is a monster. Some 25,000 poll workers each election. Dean Logan has his hands full, and he wants to make his life much harder by completely reworking the voting system. Oh, Dean Logan, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Thank you, Brad. It's good to be here. Uh, did you notice that uh, you guys in the uh, elections uh, industry have the longest titles ever? Registrar, recorder, county clerk. 
It is it is an interesting <laughs> phenomenon. I often tell people that when they tried to organize uh, Los Angeles County government, they took everything that didn't fit somewhere else <laughs> and added a hyphen and a slash and called it the Registrar Recorder County Clerk. That's so, it. Uh, I'm just going to call you Dean. But uh, very good. Uh, glad you could join us here. Have been looking forward to talking to you about this for a long time. Before we get into this, uh, to these plans for a new voting system, let me let me give you some kudos here because uh, this was important. You know, coming out of 2012. What everybody was talking about, uh, at least as of Election Day and beyond, was these ridiculous long lines that we saw all around the country, really, most notably in places like Florida, Ohio, Virginia, these swing states. Uh, but a recent study came out uh, from MIT, uh, and it wrote, on the whole, states with the smallest population had the lowest waiting times. This is related to the fact that rural areas had the shortest wait times and cities had the longest. However, uh, they write, it should be noted that California had amongst the shortest wait times in the country at an average of seven minutes, and Los Angeles County, the largest electoral jurisdiction in the nation, also averaged just seven minutes to vote. Thus, while large urban areas may be prone to longer lines, they are not destined to have them. We don't have them here. People often point to uh, Los Angeles County as, you know, this huge voting jurisdiction. You can't do this there. You can't do that there because it's just so big. But, Dean Logan, you were able to get uh, people in and out, uh, well, at least in to vote in seven minutes. What is? Congratulations. Thank you. And what is your secret, Dean? Well, well, thank you for that. I, I don't know that there's a secret. I, I think it, I think it relates to, um, a value that we place on the, the voter experience in LA County. And we, we still value, um, with our current voting system, the best way to, to ensure that people are not going to have long lines is to have, uh, sufficient polling places. And for us, that means, uh, as, as you mentioned, um, earlier, that means setting up as 4,600 or more polling locations, but that's a necessary component to serve a community that that has very diverse populations and that is spread out over a large geographic area. And uh, the the other piece to that, and again, this isn't unique to Los Angeles County, but is that uh, we do have options for voters. So so a lot of voters choose to vote by mail, although a smaller percentage in L.A. County than in the rest of the state. But we do have over a million voters who choose to be permanent vote-by-mail voters. We we factor that into the, the population at our polling places. And, um, you know, it's, it, it really is just about the value of the user experience, which is ironically driving this other project as well. And let's get to that other project, because uh, I was uh, in on some of the early discussions of this project. Um, when it was just coming together uh, about two or three years ago, maybe even more at this time. Uh, and, and I mentioned uh, before the break that, uh, you know, if people are listening here, I know we've got a big national audience. This is not just about L.A. County because the, the way you're thinking about remaking uh, the L.A. County voting system uh, would would make the system available for sale to other parts of California as well as to the rest of the country. And as I pointed out, what happens here in L.A. and in California when it comes to elections often affects uh, everywhere else in, in this country. We get a lot of these systems first, and then they go elsewhere. Uh, you're talking about remaking the entire L.A. voting system, essentially. Uh, you said uh, recently in an interview on uh, NPR that... Um, 
the uh, the 50 year old uh, system that we currently use is nearing the end of its useful life. What does that mean? Why is the system that we're using, the OpScan system uh, with with the little bubbles on it, a little bit different than the rest of the country? But why is that ending uh, nearing the end of its life as you see it? Right. Well, um, there are a number of factors involved in that. But that particular um, issue is is just to, to provide the background. The voting system in use in Los Angeles County is still a derivative of the original punch card voting system that was first introduced to Los Angeles County in the 1968 election. So we're talking about a, a voting system that that at its core is is over 40 years old. Now it's been adapted over over time. Um, it's it's no longer a punch card system, but it functions like a punch card system. So instead of pushing holes through the uh, IBM style card, uh, you use inking devices to fill in those ovals with ink. There are, there are a couple of issues with that in terms of the the lifespan of it. The just the physical lifespan of the equipment that is involved in in using that system, the vote recorder devices that, that are set up um, are very, they're very labor intensive. Um, the supplies for them are, are not, they're not common supplies that are used for other functions anymore. It's really an, an, an old methodology. The card readers that we use to count the, count the ballots, um, the good news is they count them very quickly and efficiently, which is great for a jurisdiction our size, but it's getting harder and harder to have those maintained, get parts and have them serviced. Um, beneath all of that, the the software that runs the actual tabulation program that 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 um, reads those optically scanned ballots and tabulates those and consolidates those into actual vote results is is outdated software. And so, um, similar to the parts on the physical equipment, it's hard to find people with the skill level or the background um, to even to even make modifications to that software if and when it's necessary. So what we what we end up being in a situation where where we have we're really one regulatory or legislative change away from becoming obsolete. And we really we we came close to that or really saw the significance of that when California switched to the top two primary system, which required um, some modification of the system in order for the the, the votes to be tabulated uh, correctly and. Um, and we we almost were unable to accommodate that on the current voting system. That, that, it sorry, it also has limited capacity because you you have 12 pages of of physical real estate to list the ballot measures and the and the and the contests on on that ballot, and we're. Um, we're very frequently close to exceeding that capacity. And just to be clear, that software we're talking about that, that counts the ballots, that's proprietary software, right? That's not owned by L.A. County. That's owned by, uh, is it IBM? Is it ES&S? Uh, it's no, not owned by us, right? Yeah, actually, not, that's that's not the case. That's the interesting thing. And again, that's an that's that's one of the things that's unique about Los Angeles County and one of the things that's, that's important to us or value to us in this in this process, the the tabulation software that we use was actually developed um, by Los Angeles County, by the Information um, Technology Services a Division of Los Angeles County. Um, now, we do use components of vendor-based systems, uh, for instance, the the scanners that are at the polling locations mm-hmm. um, and and some of the peripherals. But the actual tabulation software that 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 takes that reads the ballots through those card readers that that was developed and is owned by Los Angeles County and and I think that's been a great benefit now it's it's old and it and it was grandfathered in so it hasn't been through the uh robust 
uh, testing and certification process that new systems have to go through. But uh, interestingly enough, that's a key component of, of this project is we, we still would like to have a publicly owned and publicly operated voting system, uh, which is which is not the case in most jurisdictions in the country. And there, yeah, I know there is a bill in the Senate uh, from Senator Alex Padilla uh, to, to sort of help you with that project, and I want to ask you about that in a moment. But with the current system uh, of optically scanned paper ballots that are hand-marked by the voter, uh, is there... How can we know that the uh, computer has tabulated that ballot correctly? Isn't it true that we actually have to count those ballots by hand to know, in fact, if the computer has accurately uh, recorded them? Well, there are a couple of things that there are a couple of things uh, inherent in the in the regula- regulatory revi- environment around elections to to help provide that that level of, of assurance and confidence. One, we're required to do. Um, pre-testing, logic and accuracy testing on the voting system where we run marked ballots through the system, produce results that 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 uh, we can compare to hand-counted results so we know that they were tabulated correctly, um, and then we lock down the system and that test is run um, and verified each time we do a subsequent count in the election so the system is tested uh, throughout the process. Then we also are required under California law to do a a 1% manual tally where we take 1% of the precincts, uh, the ballots, I should say the ballots cast in 1% of the precincts in uh-huh. a, any given election, and then we hand count those votes and compare those to the, uh, the system tabulation. And that's, that's through a random selection. So it, you know, that is a, is one way of verifying, uh, the, the accuracy and the, and the reliability of the system. We also have, um, uh, and as you can appreciate, in a jurisdiction this size with a number of contests and, and measures, we frequently have requested recounts, manual recounts, mm-hmm. when there's a close contest. And and again, that that provides a set of data that that um, that shows the validity of the election outcomes. I'm speaking with uh, Dean Logan, the uh, Registrar Recorder County Clerk for Los Angeles County, California, the largest voting jurisdiction by far in uh, in this nation. Uh, so, Dean, in fact, what you're saying is the current system, to know for certain that the computer has counted it correctly, that's why we do this uh, post-election 1% manual audit. We count them by hand to try to make sure that they've been counted accurately by the computer system, correct? Right. That That okay. is a, that's an audit process built into the law to to verify that the tabulation system is is functioning and counting correctly. And with this new system you're beginning to look at, and and kudos to you, by the way, going back, uh, like I said, uh, at least two or three years here, trying to bring in a lot of the stakeholders. And I recall uh, when I was at some of those uh, early meetings, uh, and I haven't been invited back lately, Dean, but I'm not going to hold that against you. Um, Some of the early meetings you talked about the fact that uh, you were open to any and all voting systems. Uh, you, you didn't have any idea where this was going yet. You wanted to talk to people, uh, find out what their interests were in what you call the voting system assessment project. Um, can you give me the bottom line over the past two or three years, what the voting system assessment project has told you, what the, the standards are, the, the main standards that uh, people wanted from a new voting system in Los Angeles County? Sure. I mean, let me let me 
kind of lay the foundation for that a little sure. bit. I mean, given given what we talked about already, the fact that our our current system is is at the end of its uh, life cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other uh, reality is we know that the voting systems that are out there on the market today, uh, first of all, it's a very limited market. Uh, they those systems don't have the capacity to function well in a jurisdiction of this size. And there, you know, there's been some question about their functionality um, in general. I mean, and and you certainly have have followed that and 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 participated in in demonstrating that. Well, I was going to say, yes, yeah, some question, quite a quite a lot of questions about the accuracy of all of the existing voting systems that we currently use across the country that are currently federally certified for use. And California, of course, requires federal certification before the state can even consider state certification for these systems. Exactly, and then and then you add to that or layer on top of that the fact that the um, that the the federal infrastructure for providing that certification or approval of voting systems is is completely broken right now. It's it's governed by the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, which has no members right now, um, and is 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 mired in the the partisan political dynamic um, on Capitol Hill. Uh, there, there's two ways you can look at that from from where I sit. You could say, wow, that's just a a a total mess. How do you? How can you even function in that and try to get a new voting system? Or you can choose to, as as my staff and I have, to see that as an opportunity to to really do this right. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. after the 2000 election and the Bush v. Gore uh, situation, and then the, the similar activities that happened in the 2004 presidential election, I think what we what we've learned is that. Voting systems development in this country have have operated from a reactive standpoint, and so we you know we reacted to what happened in 2000 by saying, oh, we got to rush out and get rid of punch cards. So we there was this mad dash mm-hmm. towards the touchscreen, paperless voting systems that um, federal money was was allotted and was spent on these systems. Then come 2004, come to find out that that. Uh, that was not necessarily the most prudent thing to do. Uh, yeah, the, the, the systems that we replaced them with were often uh, worse than the, the systems that were replaced. And, and I don't mean to cut you off there. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off there, but we're going to run short on time. i got a lot to ask you, so I'm trying to move us forward here. So with the systems that exist, uh, no good for L.A., really for anybody. Uh, you're looking at building one from scratch, and so what are you finding that people want uh, I- I- from this new system? What type of system are, are you now leaning towards, Dean? Right. So that's that's exactly the the phase of the project we're in now. We've collected a bunch of data. We've committed to saying that this is going to be a user user based or user driven project. So we wanted to know what voters thought rather than just what we thought, um, and we collected that data. Now we have a design firm. Um, out of the Bay Area IDEO, which um, is a human-centered design firm that has done some incredible work um, both in the private and the public sector. Um, and they are, they're taking all of that data and they are, they are going to develop um, the, the, from the data and the principles that we've adopted. And the principles, you asked about that earlier, the mm-hmm. principles that were adopted for this project are the things that I think are, uh, that are very critical from your standpoint. They're transparency, security, accuracy, uh, verifiability, all of those things that that, um, that that those of us who care about the integrity of elections um, value highly. So what the design firm is doing is putting together uh, design models for a voting system. They're not de- they're not creating technology. They're not building a machine. They are designing a um, 
a model for what the voter user experience would look like based on all of that data and that experience. And would would this uh, system involve uh, computers of some type, be it uh, scanners like we have now or uh, cell phone technology? I saw some talk about that, which was very concerning to me, frankly. Um, so we are talking about a computer-based system, uh, a, a new computer-based system of some sort that is currently being sort of uh, designed or, or, or imagined at this point. I, I think there certainly will be computer-based or electronic-based components to the system. Now, what, what that looks like and where that plays into the, the final output of the ballot and how the ballot is, is tabulated, I think, remains to be seen. I mean, we're, we're committed to, to following through on the, the data and the feedback we got and comparing that to the principles. And then when, when, it's, when it comes time to manufacture or build the machine or the component or the electronics, um, it's going to have to meet those same standards. And part of part of this engagement with the design firm is to not – they can't simply create a pretty picture. They have to back that up with a feasibility study that shows that, that this is something that could reasonably be um, developed, manufactured, and meet the – the desires of the the principles that we've adopted. Is Internet voting a part of this? In other words, uh, we've got uh, computer scientists and security experts who I'm sure you know have warned for years and years against Internet voting, casting votes across the Internet. Uh, Has this been ruled out from your system, uh, given the dangers that it poses and uh, given so many people who have worked on elections, uh, you know, testing the computer systems here in California and so forth, who have said we simply cannot uh, cast votes across the internet at this time. Are you ruling that out in, in the new system, Dean Logan? Yeah, I would say that that internet voting, as as it has been attempted um, and discussed in this country and outside of this country, would not uh, would not fall within. Would, it would not meet the standards that we've adopted for for this project. So uh, the the principles that have adopted um, envision still a paper based ballot that's available for auditing and verifiability. Um, uh, the security standards that are um, that are embedded in our in our principles um, and the 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 value of a, of a secret ballot that, that um, allows for independence in voting um, I, I think are outside the scope of of any internet voting project that has been attempted at this point. I'm very glad to hear that, and I'm going to run through some questions here uh, as quickly as I can, only because I'm coming to the top of the hour, uh, Dean. But uh, would, would it also involve uh, hand-marked paper ballots as opposed to computer-marked paper ballots? I'm sure you recall, Dean, but I'll remind our listeners, uh, some years ago, my own vote here in uh, L.A. County uh, was misprinted by the computer. Uh, four of the 12 votes I had cast on that ballot were actually misprinted by the computer uh, and I was using the computer that was was uh, for for disabled voters for blind voters luckily I'm not blind so I was able to see that the computer had misprinted four of my 12 votes uh, so as you can imagine I have great concerns about a computer uh, printing right. out my results so is yeah, that something so, so- that's also been ruled out well, two things I'll say about that. First, as, as you know, I mean, to just, to, just to clarify, what, what we found when we further investigated that is you actually were presented with the wrong ballot. So, so while they were not the choices you made based on the ballot you were supposed to get, um, which is still problematic, it was not that it, that it um, misprinted 
the votes on the ballot that you were actually given. But that's a, that's a separate issue. Well, the wrong, the wrong data was punched into the computer. Right. And so, right. and the computer gave me one ballot and, and so it, it gave me the wrong ballot and I ended up, uh, voting, had I not noticed this, for four people who I was actually voting against in that right. case. And I think that's, that's actually the key, key thing that I wanted to get to is, is again, I don't want to, We've been very intentional about not presupposing what the outcome of this is going to be. So I, so I want to be careful about that. But to, to get to your point, I think that it's likely that, um, that what we, what we end up with will, will allow for hand-marked, um, ballots, but, but that there very well could be some electronic interfaces for marking the ballot. But the key component there is that, is the verifiability. And it's just what you said is, is making sure that the voter has the ability to verify that the marks that they made electronically um, match up to to their choices. How, so, how do the voters after the election know? Well, you don't do it after the election. I guess that's my point. No, no. I'm saying that how how would I, as an election integrity advocate, how would I look at those computer printed ballots and know that the voter had approved them and approved them correctly? Since we have studies showing that you know 80 percent of the people don't check their uh, the, the the paper trails that are printed off by computers. Other studies show that even when they do check them, they don't notice vote flips. So how would I, after the election, know that the voter had that I was actually looking at the voter intent on a computer printed ballot? Well, I think there, I think there are a couple of different ways to address that and, and, and that could, that could be a, a whole show. But I would say one, one fundamental thing that, that I, I hope that we, we look at in this is actually separating the front end from the back end of that. So in other words, you might have a ballot marking device that you use some sort of, um, interface, whether it be touchscreen or, or, or a keyboard where you make your selections that prints out a, a, a ballot that's human readable so you can see that I, I made my selection for Brad Friedman and for yes on Measure J and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you can actually physically see that. And then you take that and deposit that into a back-end system that does the actual tabulation that is totally separate and independent from the marking the marking system. Yeah, understood, but I, I am worried uh, that there's no way to know that that's actually what the voter intent was if it was printed by a, a computer. We're, we're, Dean, we're going to have to talk about this. I hope you'll come back in the future. I, I know I ask tough questions, but I, I really do want to uh, you know get some idea of where we are headed. We've got a lot of listeners in Los Angeles County. This is an important decision uh, that, that lies ahead in the next year or two. Um, very quickly, uh, in about the 30 seconds I have left, w- will this voting system be federally certified, independently federally and uh, independently state certified before it's ever used in L.A.? Uh, it will be certified and approved before it's used in, in L.A. County. Whether that's uh, a federal and state or a state-only certification depends on what happens with this legislation that's going to be pending in Sacramento. Independently. The other thing I will, say, the yeah. other thing I will throw in there in these, in these final seconds is that that whatever we do will be field tested and there will be prototypes and we will we will gather input from voters before a final decision is made and before it even goes through a certification. We talked, Dean, about hand counting uh, and testing that. Since you said you were open to any and all systems, have you uh, had the opportunity to look into hand counted paper ballots in this process? Uh, it has been part of the research that we've done yet. Okay, I'm going to have to ask you about that research in the future and and, uh, count on it that I will because I really want to know what has been done on that score. Dean Logan, registrar, recorder, county clerk, has a a mammoth job uh, currently and a huge job ahead of him. Thanks, Dean, for your time here today. I hope we can do this again in the near future. 
Sounds good. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Dean. All right. My thanks also to our producer, Desi Doyen, our super-duper associate producer, Margo Paez. Good luck on your test tomorrow, tomorrow, Margo. Thanks to soundboard operator G. Also to uh, our international in-studio broadcast observer, Steve Dorst. Hope you had a good time, Steve. Uh, stay tuned for John Wiener. He will have more on Boston and the lessons learned from Oklahoma City. We'll be back same time next week, same Brad time, same Brad channel. Until then, you can find me on bradblog.com, on the Twitters at the Bradblog. Good night, America.